You're listening to the Evolving Truths Podcast, featuring mother-daughter hosts, Shannon Day and Alexis Ray, where honest and vulnerable conversations about personal growth create a connection between all of us. You're invited to experience the transformation that occurs when we allow the truth of who we are to evolve. Hello, you beautiful heart and soul. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Alexis Ray, and this is Evolving Truths. With me, as always, is my mama, Shannon Day. Hi, mama. Hey, Lex. How are you? I say it every time, but I'm stoked to be here. I'm glad that you love having conversations with your mom that much. Yes. And recently, the part that's really been resonating is when one of your friends told you that we would have these recordings forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I well up thinking about it because we are all human, right? And I don't know that you might go before me or I might go before you, but like life is temporary and precious and it makes me sick to think about it, but I'm already so grateful. Yeah. It is a nice side benefit. I had never even really thought about that. Right. Yeah. Not to get like super heavy right away. How are you doing? (laughs) Let's take a breath here. I'm good. Good. TGIF. Yeah. It is a Friday, which is nice. It's beautiful here. Fall is my favorite time of year. I'm with you. I didn't really appreciate it as much when I was younger. It's such a transition. Like obviously all the seasons are I was just going to say that. Yeah. You're going from summer always feels vibrant and light. And then there's fall and it's like this beautiful acknowledgement of all this life that was just lived. Then we like transition into a time of kind of dormant reflection, or at least that's what winter was for me growing up in Colorado because it was cold AF. I was going to say we're coming into baggy sweats and hoodies weather. Oh, yeah. Actually, Arizona has been getting like cooler in the evenings, and it's really nice in the mornings, like that crisp morning air. And that's sweatshirt weather for me, so I'm kind of enjoying that. But currently, I'm in Joshua Tree. Oh, nice. And it is so peaceful and tranquil. I'm really grateful to be having today's conversation from this location. I've never been there. I'm excited to hear about your experience. I'm excited to figure out what the experience is. (laughs) Speaking of experiences, today on Evolving Truths, we are getting a brand new experience. Yeah, we're interviewing a big wig. Yeah, a published author. It's, it's so amazing. Crazy. And the first male voice to join the podcast. Ooh, mom, I hadn't thought of that. We're freaking stoked. How about you get us started with a quick introduction and how you've connected with him, and then I'll let everyone know more about him. Love it. Him, for your information, is Reggie D. Ford. I welcome, met Reggie. Hey, oh, welcome, hey, hey. Reggie. I was just going to go. I met Reggie at the beginning of August because we both attended a boot camp seminar training. After that, we touched base, found out Reggie wrote a book, read his book. We got to have a couple of conversations, and now he's here and a friend. So it's so nice to welcome my new friend, Reggie Ford. Thank you. Thank you. We're very excited that you're here. Reggie. I'm excited to be here. I'm honored, honestly, 
to be the first male voice that is that is a significant thing to undertake and so i'm i'm so pumped we'd love to tell you a little bit about reggie Reggie D. Ford is the author of the best-selling book, Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction, Breaking the Curse of Intergenerational Trauma as a Black Man in America. He is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, mental health advocate, and social justice activist. A first-generation college graduate of Vanderbilt University, he runs Rose Creek Wealth Management and speaks to audiences about financial empowerment, overall wellness, and the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Katie, and the Rottweiler, Rosie. And Rosie's in the background. Hi, Rosie. Rosie's right here with me, like always. (laughs) How old is she? Rosie's three now. She's getting up there. Yeah. Okay. she's, she's She's still young and spry. Love it. And she does yoga with you? She does yoga. Her favorite pose is downward facing dog. <laughs> Look at her little head. <laughs> I know. She looks precious. Okay. Well, here we go. So Reggie, you do many things mm-hmm. and you get to do these many things because of the life experiences you have had. Yes. Yes. Tell us without giving away too much about the book, quick synopsis. The book is a memoir story of my life and I highlight two parts, mental health and social justice, and paint the picture that injustice and being marginalized, oppressed of any type, any sort, how that it plays a role in one's mental health. And the book follows these three main sections, first starting with normalization of all the stuff in life that we normalize. And I tell my story growing up to a very young mother, 14 years old, when she had me, of being in the hood, experiencing trauma, experiencing, you know, crime and violence and gangs and all of that. That's the normalization phase. That was all normal to me. And then there was this shift in my life where I had the opportunity to get out of my neighborhood. I went to a school on the other side of town. It was a private school that was very prestigious and that's the phase of that plus, you know, early college was the phase of realization for me, where being exposed to people from different backgrounds started to realize that the experiences that I had normalized my entire life weren't that normal. And then the last phase is liberation, where I go from normalizing to realizing to then getting the treatment and the help and finding real tools and resources to address the mental health. And that is such a freeing experience. And that's why it's, it's deemed liberation. Ooh, you just said so many things. I love that you have named these chapters of life or come up with a term to sum it all up because I've, I resonate with that naming my emotional becoming, naming this season that I'm in right now. So thanks for doing that. Yes. Redefining normal is how we conclude normalization and the things that we want, the good things that we want, we'll normalize those. Yeah. Like stop giving me this perception of what we think we're supposed to be. Absolutely. Right. It is steeped in a lot of assumptions, a lot of supposed to, I hate the phrase supposed to, and it's about 
finding what works for you, what's healthy for you, and using that going forward. Growing up, what do you feel like you were being taught was supposed to be your normal? So normal for me was poverty. Looked around and saw poverty. And if it wasn't extreme poverty, it was a drug dealer who made a lot of money. So drugs and gangs, it was expecting that a young person was going to die before 20 years old. It was things like that, that were normal. And that's a tough thing to deal with. And while you're in it, it it is all survival. And I don't think while you're in it, you even get to the realization phase. You have to be removed from it to, to then almost be on the outside looking in saying, wow, like that is different. That is not normal. And so all of those things, even teen pregnancy, like my mom was 14 when she had me. My dad was 18. My grandmother, my mom's mom was 15 when she had her. So Lex, you and I are older than my grandmother was when I was born. Could you imagine being a grandmother right now? No. And when you even say my mother was 14, like I think, I think about that and it you know, sends a shiver down my spine. Mm -hmm. I've been having a bunch of age realizations with turning 30. And I've had this conversation with you, mom, where I'm like, you had an eight year old or a nine year old at this age. And I'm barely feeding myself. Like, (laughs) I mean, I'm feeding myself, obviously, but DoorDash. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It blows my mind. Yes. Yes. It blows my mind too. Cause I'm married, but no kids yet. And I'm still terrified to even think about that reality. So to wrap my brain around that is remarkable. Do you think for us, it's our age group or our generation, having a child to me is an extreme responsibility. It's no longer just something that you grow up, get married and do. You feel like you're being more thoughtful about the decision to have a child. Yeah. Perhaps than generations before. I think for me, I had the opportunity and the ability to plan, which a lot of generations before me didn't have the opportunity to plan. Things just happened. And so part of it is that ability and being afforded that. Another part of it is fear, I think. So having enough knowledge to plan and to provide, you know, have the financial stability and do all these things that would set a child up for success. But then with that comes a lot of awareness around all these things to be afraid of. And that's where like one is good. The other is kind of crippling. And I think that's where I'm, I am at. In your book, Reggie, you have a part when you talk about that decision, as you said, sometimes it ends up happening. It is what it is. It's also what's expected. Mm -hmm. Like you said, Lex, the quote unquote norm is grow up, get married, have kids. And depending on how you were raised and what beliefs were with that, like that's just what you do. And I really appreciate that people are taking more time to think about that Mm -hmm. Um, because it is a really big responsibility and for some of us carries more, which Reggie later when we get to, 
your letter. We'll be able to talk about that. One of the things in the introduction that I love, Reggie, was the note, having hopes for the readers of the book and you acknowledging I'm being vulnerable in this book. This is me and this is my story. And I appreciated you owning and taking it and not glossing over it. And then saying this book's not about solutions. It's not necessarily answers, but here are my hopes. And I just like us to read this part because even with what you just started with for some who are with us in the Evolving Truths community, when you talk about having grandma who was 15 when she had your mom and a mom who was 14, right away, we're like, well, can't even relate to that. (laughs) And as your story continues, there's more things. So I love in here that you say, I have hopes for readers of this book. To those who cannot relate to my story, may it be a window into a world in which countless people are living. I hope it helps you better understand the struggles and mindsets of people who've endured the harsh realities of life, realities that you may never have to face. Allow it to open your eyes and your hearts so that you may empathize on a whole new level. And for the many people who can relate, I hope my story provides you comfort in knowing you are not alone. Let this book inspire you to break the curses that have plagued you and your family. Listening to it too, I got to hear it in your voice and to just, Mm -hmm. you could hear times when emotion hit you, even as you were reading the book. Yes. How was that experience getting to read what you had written? It was more difficult than writing it. That's for sure. I honestly, in writing it, I was still in a phase of deep grief. I was still in a phase of some disbelief around some of the things that were occurring in the, that I write about. And so reading it almost, I think I released it a a year after, a little bit over a year after writing the book, maybe not that long, but it was almost surreal to know that I had experienced that or I had written that because growing up, I had always been a very shy, reserved person. And to be that vulnerable in a book and now to be this vulnerable in life, it's a totally different person. But Again, I think it it, like just how the book ends with liberation, it is also liberating. Like to what you alluded to earlier, my ability to share, talk about, you know, the trauma that I had endured and witnessing domestic violence and then becoming the abuser to a high school girlfriend of mine. And that is probably the one thing in my life that I regret the most. That plus a couple other parts of the book I had tinkered with. Do I expose this? Do I not? Do I say this? And I I didn't want to feel like an imposter in any parts of the book. And so even the the good, the bad, the ugly of what I've done, what has happened to me, all of that is what you get out of the book. And I think that helps the reader because we're so complex as humans. And it shows that you can be a best-selling author, award-winning wealth manager. You can have all these great accolades and be this highly respectable person but still have parts of your life that you're not proud of and that other people may look like that is a horrible thing, but that's the human experience. We're not just binary, good, bad. It's, it's much more complex than that. We all have chapters of life that we don't read out loud. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oof, girl. 
Noted. I like that. Yeah. But I think that's what makes a, a great book, a great provocative book. It's like these things aren't usually said. And when they are said, we're thinking it or we have experienced it. And finally, somebody has had the courage to write about it, to expose it, to say it out loud. And I think that's what people gravitate toward, that realness. That was the idea behind this podcast. Similar phase of realization that you're talking about was I started bringing these questions and topics to my mom. Have you ever experienced X, Y, or Z? We have an amazing conversation about it. And then I take it to another girlfriend and I take it to another friend. And I realize that these are all things we need to be talking about. Mm-hmm. And in the community that you grew up in, you get to not only be an example, but you get to say that this is not that way, Mm -hmm. right? Like you had to live those experiences to know that you were going to go a totally different direction and stumbling along the way in our human nature is our evolution. Right. Right. That's the evolving truth of it all. Amen. Ooh, (laughs) Reggie. Oh man. I love we it. got three hosts now. <laughs> Take it easy there. There's a lot of responsibility and <laughs> No, I'm not gonna step on y'all's toes. No. Okay. All right, mama, bring us back. What's next? Let's go back to this thought around normalization and our experiences. When we don't take the time to look for something or expose ourselves to something that's not our normal. Just thinking like how limited then our life experience is, whether Mm -hmm. it's one that's been filled with a lot of privilege and not facing a lot of things that you did, Reggie, or it's facing the things that you did, you were able to make changes in your life because you got exposed to something else. And even though it was difficult, being willing to step into that. Mm -hmm. Would you like to talk about that opportunity that you had to do that and really kind of where it first hit you? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's sometimes it's a choice and sometimes it is forced or you just don't have the opportunity or even the knowledge to get that extra experience. And so, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people from my community are in survival mode and are in a mindset where this is all that the world is. And if you don't leave your neighborhood or if you don't leave one city in your entire life, then you are only limited to that experience. But when I was in eighth grade, I transitioned from public school to private school. And the private school on the other side of town was a huge culture shock for me. I come from a school where I was a part of the majority. Nearly every student was Black and had similar experiences that I had. And going to the private school in my first year, I was the only Black person in my class. And it was the most difficult transition I've ever had to make in my entire life. Being a 13, 14 year old kid, having to put on this mask every day, go to a whole new world, learn how to talk like they do, learn how to be interested in the things that they're interested in, to just get by, to be able to survive in that environment. But it also helped in challenging me on some of the things that I had normalized 
where I would show up and even just my responses to things like getting angry and fighting wasn't a normal response. I think getting angry is, is, is human, but how you deal with that on the other end is totally different. Having conversations and communicating versus resulting in violence and different things like that. How people raised children and I'm seeing from parents of my friends and how they punish their children versus how I was punished and how when we look at research on on trauma and things like that there's a bear walking around in my house every time because I'm getting I'm getting whooped with a belt with a extension cord with a hanger with whatever is around at the time where this person's getting to actually regulate and actually have conversations to where they understand why they got in trouble, what to do in corrective measures and things like that. And so there's a, a myriad of things that I learned, some that I'm appreciative of, some that I didn't take with me, but to redefine normal, you have to have that open awareness and critical thinking to what it is that's going to be best for you in your life. Yeah. And you had to do that pretty much on your own, right? Yeah. Like, was there, you know, the school said, come, we want you to come here. But then was there support provided around yeah. what it's like now to be the only mm-hmm. Black student in your class? There was no official or formal support from the school, from, from any anyone, really. There, was, there were folks who looked out for me. So I got introduced to the school through a nonprofit organization and the founder of that nonprofit organization was heavily involved in the school. And so he would make sure that it was a good fit for me, asking how my experience was going. And of course, I wasn't honest. I wasn't always upfront about how I how I felt about it, but he cared and I saw that. And then I had a couple families who the son, he had played AAU with a lot of boys from my neighborhood. And so he 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 had some flavor about him. He was cool. His family was just open to looking out for me. And so those things helped, but it still was so overwhelming. Like the academics, it's a challenging school, but I was able to adapt to the academics. The the challenging part was the social and the cultural piece that was so overwhelming that I almost considered going back to public school and just, you know, going back to what I was comfortable with. In the book, you said hearing the things that you heard and the comments that were made to you, you were like, I can't believe that people thought it was okay to talk like that. You speak about them as cuts and that you became, I think about, you just talked about surviving, but you survived through becoming numb. Yes. Yes. That was a coping mechanism that I think I used a lot in my life was to suppress and, and numb things so that they wouldn't hurt as much. So, you know, you get early on when I'm a brand new student there, I hear the joke, hey, Reggie, what's the difference between a black person and a bag of shit? The bag, you know, insinuating that black people are worthless and and waste. And so like that hurts and I want to respond how I respond, but I know I'm going to be deemed the angry black kid sent home, you know, labeled all these different things. So I try to compose myself enough, but then to get through that situation, to survive, hearing the words, hearing the hateful things, you suppress it, you block it, you as much as you can, 
because at some point it's it you're bound to explode and letting it all comes out and i think that's kind of how the book opens up with just this explosion of so much of my life's experience it's just like all those things that have been pushed down and suppressed finally came out and that was a painful experience but it was also an experience that led to good feelings but I don't think that anyone should have to endure and suppress parts of themselves just because they are trying to survive a situation. It makes me think of another line from your book. The longer you hold it, the heavier it feels. Yes. Similar to a glass of water or any just anything, right? You hold it out in front of you for 30 minutes. You feel it, but you can do that. For an hour, ooh, starting to burn. For a day, oh, you can't feel your arm anymore. And the weight of whatever you're holding, right? The weight of that comment, the weight of those experiences, that doesn't change. That's in the past. That happened and it's done. But holding on to it, not getting the right support, not getting the right help and treatment for it, it just feels heavier. And it's compounded with other experiences that go from the experience to triggers, now, you had this experience back here that reminded you of something very painful in childhood. And now all these other things are triggering, bringing back those emotions. And that is where the real hurt and the real pain comes from, if left unaddressed. Whew. You talk about the experience, Reggie, at the school. I'm trying to get through that. But then you talk about while at school, you were the quote unquote token black kid. And, and at home... Yeah. I was a seller. Talk about that. Yeah. So it always struck me as strange that in my neighborhood and my family and everything, it was, it was go get a good education, get out of this, get out of the hood, get out of the trap, get out of the cycle. And the moment I did that, it was as if I had turned my back on my entire community and nothing had changed about me. I was a 13 year old boy going from public school to private school. I was the same person. And the moment I stepped foot on campus, it was as if I had somehow changed my whole identity, my whole philosophy on life and everything. And it felt like the, the biggest rejection, the biggest abandonment from the people who I loved the most, like and, and immediate family, extended family, community. And it, it just it, it hurt. It hurt because they didn't experience what I experienced when I walked on the campus. It may have been the assumption that life I was living a whole nother life over here and I was acting a whole different way, but I was receiving the treatment and, and just feeling what it felt like to be in a totally different world every single day. And then at the end of the day, after classes and after practice, I was coming back home. And so it wasn't like I was just in paradise and had abandoned everybody. I was doing what I had always been told to do was get the education, get out. And that was frowned upon by some and, and others. Some people really applauded me and congratulated me for it. It wasn't until later in life when we became adults that a lot of my friends from my neighborhood had wished that they had done something differently. And so it comes full circle. But at the time, as a, as a child, you're like, why? Why am I feeling this? And why am I being treated this way? Well, and tapping into that deep bravery, in my opinion, of I'm going to go after the things that I'm being told I should go after, even as it starts to become a more difficult trial and tribulation with this split identity to keep going after it. That drive, that 
willingness to keep suffering in that way. And I, I am going to call it suffering. We could call it something different. What for you, Reggie, fueled you? Yeah. And I, and I'll say like, I don't think, I think identity is something that's self-prescribed. And so the identity was the same. The perception Mm -hmm. was different. This perception was split. And what fueled me, I think I've always been fueled by making believers out of disbelievers. And so when it came to people who didn't think that I was up for the challenge, when it came to the academics that I was having to face, when it came to sports, when it came to any of the stuff that I had to deal with in life, like I'm going to beat that stat. I'm going to beat the odds. And that's what I've been doing my entire life, right? That is, that is perseverance 101. Like I've been overcoming all of those things. And that's something that was more part of my identity and how I identified than probably anything else was tell me I can't do something. And and this, I used to like literally say those words to people. Like, tell me I can't jump 10 feet over there. Tell me I can't grab the rim. Tell me I can't, you know, do whatever and I'm going to do it. And I think that comes from insecurities, honestly. Like if I look back at it, there are insecurities there. There was shame there and trying to overcome those things. It was always just push harder. I guess part of my mechanism, defense mechanism was to work and numb the pain with work as opposed to substances or anything else. Mine was work. And I think that's what helped me drive and push me through. That resonates for me in life, have dealt with traumas through overachieving Mm -hmm. and making sure that there were enough accolades for everyone else to be looking at. So it felt new and shiny over there. And we didn't have to talk about these chapters that I don't read out loud. Mm -hmm. And kudos to you for the work it takes to overcome that. For someone who has used work to cope, the unlearning of those habits and the reprogramming in the phases of the realization and the liberation, liberation. that's heavy. And when all of those things come to the surface at once, what was that like for you? It was... It was overwhelming, right? I think, oh, I heard I heard the greatest line from my therapist. She said that that triggers are trailheads to healing. And I was like, wait, 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 you gotta run that back. Say that again. Yeah. Um. She said triggers are trailheads to healing. And what she meant by that, like, you know, you're a hiker, Shannon. And so that trailhead is the first point in, you know, you're going through a path or going through a hike, and then you end at this this beautiful place of you know, the top of the mountain, the edge of the waterfall, whatever it may be. And that's the healing, that view that you get at the end. But the trigger hurts. It's painful. But if if you aren't feeling a trigger, you're probably still in stuck in survival mode. You're probably still pushing stuff down because it's not triggering yet. It's it's just uh that hurts. It push you push it down. And I think that moment, I feel like my whole life had just been pushing things down. And I almost get this image of just pain being, you know, starting at my ankles all the way up. And then like at my heart, it started to hurt, right? You know, losing people and and different grief and loss and things like that, that started to hurt. But then once it got to my head, I couldn't push down anymore. Then it just erupted and, you know, found myself on cold hardwood floor, crying my eyes out in an anxiety attack after not sleeping for 30 days or more. 
And that was a, a painful, painful experience. But without that, and I think that was too late, but without that experience for me, I think I would have continued on the journey of pushing things down, of suppressing things, of ignoring my mental health. But because of that experience, I woke up and was like, I got to do something different. I got to go find some help. I got to go use these resources that I know about, but I'm not utilizing. And so it was painful. It is painful at times. I'll, I'll be honest, like two weeks ago, maybe was triggered, was like F the world. And I don't like anybody. But my bounce back from those things are quicker, are better. I deal with those things a little bit healthier now. And that's that's a part of the journey. That's a part of the healing. Like when you're at that trailhead, you don't know, you might stumble, hit your knee on something. But, you know, healing is somewhere at the end of that. How old were you when that first trailhead started, when these triggers started going off? That's a good question. Somewhere in my mid-20s, I would say. So after I met Katie, I became more aware I'd always been aware of just my drive and my mindset and things like that, but becoming aware of the way that my trauma was impacting me. And I was also in a safer environment. I had graduated from college. I had financial stability. I had like these things, like when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? My basic needs were met, my love and all, all of these things had been met. And so that's when I was able in a safe place to start to feel and somewhere in my mid twenties, yeah, it's just like things started to hurt and things that I had never even thought about again after they happened. Like, I just like leave that in the past and keep on going because right now it's not serving me. It's going to cripple me if I got to go outside and I got to survive. I can't let that cripple me right now. But when you get to a place of peace and, and safety, that's when I think it really starts to hurt and hit. And it may feel like reverting back to the pain, but it's a part of the healing process. Like that hurt is a part of the healing process. You'll go through that. When you talk about triggers or trailheads, piece of this is recognizing one, being able to recognize the trigger, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then when you think of it as a trailhead, there have definitely been times when Lex and I have gone out for a hike and said, we're going to go do this trail. And we get to it and we read it and we're like, yeah, let's maybe go this way. Or right. I'm heading out for a trail run and I pick one and I go, nah, I don't want to climb today right? <laughs> or, or whatever it is. So I go, no, I'm going to do this. I like thinking about it as a trailhead. And we're sitting at that point. You also don't necessarily have to take the trail right at that moment. What you just described was being in a place where you could start to work on what those triggers were and the effects it was having. Yes. Yes. The awareness piece is such a huge part of it. Becoming aware, even if I hadn't started to act on it, started to seek treatment, I was aware. And so when things would happen, I could sense these physiological changes in my body. I could feel different things happening. And that that's a part of it too. And, and you can't force anyone or not even yourself at times to, to go that extra step. It's like when the time is right, when you feel comfortable, when things are aligned, that's when you start to make that, that transition and start to seek the help that you need. But forcing it may 
take you down. But I'll tell a story. So when I first met Katie, I was, again, I had just come out of an abusive relationship in high school where I was the abuser and I was manipulative and all kinds of different things. And that was just what I knew. I grew up in a home that I was manipulated every single way. And so I thought that's how you got someone you love. If you love me, do this type of stuff. And she wouldn't let that shit fly. She's just like, absolutely not. I think I had matured enough to not just push that away and be like, all right, next. I had matured enough to see that that was growth for me. And so fast forward, she recommended I go to therapy and I had been opposed to it and fought against it and been reluctant, but I eventually agreed. And I agreed with the confidence in her that like, she wants the best for me. She loves me. I think this is a good thing. But then she told her best friend about it. And that was, that's, that's a betrayal for me. Like this was something that was confidential between us because I'm still insecure about these things. I don't want to broadcast this to anyone. And for you to do that, it triggered something in me. And I just absolutely shut down. Wasn't going to do that. Didn't do it for seven years after that. Right. So I ended up coming back and just got to recognize those things. And, and it's important if you're dealing with, if it's your own trauma or if it's somebody else's trauma, not to force it because then you can, you can make things not worse, but you can, you know, send bad signs. To be willing to walk the path of healing takes its own bravery because like you said, Reggie, you have to go through it. You have to refill the things. You have mm-hmm. to open those chapters up again that have been closed and shut down and thrown away or put on the shelf. And walking through those things is hard. Mm-hmm. And the healing process then becomes not just about you. It becomes about the other people in your life that have caused those hurts, showing up new in those relationships, presenting your new quote unquote healed self, right? You're transitioning into a new perspective of life can cause ripples and rifts in all of those dynamics. Can you tell us what that was like what got uncomfortable in your life as you were healing. Yeah. What you said earlier reminded me of this intro from my favorite artist, Kevin Gates. And he says, sometimes it's painful to relive the past, but sometimes you have to relive the past in order to heal from it. And I thought that 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 was right along the lines of what you just said. But I started to put up boundaries. I recognize that healthy boundaries for me was something that I enjoyed. I I would protect my space. I would protect my peace. And that came with certain rules. And other people in my life, parents, really didn't understand that. I was an adult and I don't think I was always viewed as an adult. I think people have this, this view of you, however they view you. They're going to view you as the child that they remember. They're going to view you as the student. They're going to they're going to view you in whatever light they, they, they do until you give them a reason to view you otherwise. And if they are stuck in a phase of life or if their trauma has caused them to be stuck, then that may be where it is forever, indefinitely, regardless of what you do. And so showing up as an adult was something that caused a lot of attention between especially me and my mom. Me and my mom for a year, like when I was growing up, we were best friends. We were as thick as thieves. And as I started to 
you know, have my own independent thoughts. As I started to have my own independence in general, that was, I don't know, maybe viewed as a threat to our relationship. And so there was tension that, that was built there. And that was tough because, you know, I love and will always love my mom, but then there's this piece of it, piece of our relationship that is very hard to live with. And so I put up boundaries there. And those boundaries have resulted in estrangement for over three years now, which is wild to believe. It's crazy. I, I didn't even realize that. And then same thing with my father. We didn't have a relationship until I was probably 18. And then we became best friends. We were we were like brothers for, I'd say, like 10 years. And then their situations occurred where we were all triggered. We were all back into a mode where we were challenged. And that situation, I think it, it exposed the work that I had been doing versus the work that wasn't being done. And not to say that like I was this like angel in the situation, but there was differences in how we responded to those things. And it resulted in us not not having a relationship, but it was me protecting my peace, right? Yeah. And I think it's so hard because the people that are going to be the recipients of your boundaries the most are going to be the ones you love the most. The ones that mm. that you, you know, the periphery, they're out there. Like, who cares if I hurt their feelings or not? Like, I, I don't know them. They, they're out there, but who cares? Right. But the ones that you love, those are the ones that you're going to be so conflicted with. Like you're going to want to pick up that car. You're going to want to text. You're going to want to go over, but then you remember the pain. And I think that's something that I will always put at the forefront is I know the pain that comes from this relationship and not to say that there will never be a relationship, but there are stipulations around that. And stipulations are, I want to see people actively trying to heal as well, because I know where we come from and I know how that presents. And I know that it breeds this and if we want to be stuck in this, in this normalization phase of it, then, then you can be stuck with it over there. But if you want to come and be liberated, then do the work. And so that's, that's one of the, the boundaries that I've set. And one of the things that I've learned through my healing is everyone's not going to be ready for that. It's about you and what makes you feel whole, because we all come in this world, even if you're a twin, triplet, whatever, we come in this world individually and we're going to go out individually it's about making sure that you are happy, you're healthy, and yeah, at peace when it's all said and done. 100%. Only way that we contribute as a healed individual is by niching down to yourself first. You have to become your number one priority. You have to put your air mask on or face mask on that's flowing oxygen on the airplane before you help anyone else. Mm-hmm. But when we get brave enough to do that work, it sends a shockwave through Absolutely. our people, through our community. And I really appreciate you just naming the transition child-parent relationship to adult-child to adult-parent relationship is really hard. Mm-hmm. That time and transition and those ripples that then when we're sitting here in our healing, liberated self where we should be feeling good, 
it still hurts that those relationships struggle because of the choices we've had to make for ourselves to live. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it hurts. It definitely hurts, especially when it's your parents. Because again, the supposed to, I, I like it, but like your parents, they're the ones that are supposed to comfort you and support you more than anyone else in the entire world. If the people who brought me in this world don't support me, then how can anyone else? And I think, you know, going back to kind of the drive and, and the things that I was doing, I think from early on, my mom, she had always been very emotionally absent through her trauma. That was her response. I rarely ever heard, I love you. I rarely got hugs. I rarely had that affection for my mom. And so baby me, who's craving that, that that child in me was like, oh, if I get an A on this, I bet she says she loves me. If I go out and I score 10 touchdowns, I bet they say they love me. I that was that was the drive. I I think deep down inside was trying to get that love, that uh, attention from the people who brought me into the world. It's a realistic expectation that the people who brought you into this world are going to be your biggest cheerleaders supporters. And when you do set boundaries and you are growing, some of the people you have to set them with the most are your parents. Like it's a, what's the word? It's an oxymoron, but like, it's, it's just this weird thing to think that some of the people, the relationships in your life that you most need to set it with might need to be your parents. And then the fact that as a parent, I'd like to think I'm doing a good job and this boundary gets set and I'm going to respect it. That's what my child's asking. Yet we're the ones also who probably can push back on it more, right? Or mm-hmm. question it or be like, how dare you bring that Take in here offense. with me? Yeah. Like, don't get what mad do at think? me. Yeah. The thing that I heard growing up was, I raised you, how could you tell me anything? Or I brought you into this world, I could take you out. Like those type of things. It's like, that's terrifying. Like that's <laughs> terrifying to be entitled enough to think that you have all the answers just because you raised someone who has a whole different experience and a whole different life. But you redefine normal, Shannon. And so I'm going in. Supposed to, yes, parents are supposed to support and care and love for their children. I'm, I'm, that's the new normal. But I think it's tough sometimes when you don't live up to what you had set out for for yourself. And, and then you see the spawn of you coming out and doing these things. But I think that that is an extension of you. And so it's like, hell yeah, go do it. I'm, I'm pumped for it. That's part of your legacy. To wrap this up, because I know, Reggie, we need to let you go. And we're going to come back for part two. But... The breaking the intergenerational trauma. So as we grown children continue to do our healing, continue to evolve, continue to say, that's not coming with me in life, and then expect the people that raised us to go do their work and to raise those boundaries and to set the expectation of a higher standard of living breaks it for the people that have taught us. And then it gets to have more generations showing our unborn children how good life can be. I think that puts a lot of responsibility on us. And as grown children, I think I think it, it has to be a decision that adults, the adult parents make. I have a friend who wrote a book and in the book, it's more about finances 
as a professional athlete, but he talks about expectation versus legacy. So expectation is the handouts that parents, uncles, aunts are asking for versus legacy is the child that he's trying to set up. And so those two are always at conflict with each other. If he gives everything that he wants to to his mom, then his son or his daughter is going to have to suffer. There is a sacrifice that must be made. And I think the same in the emotional energy that you put out is the same way. Like I, I this is for my unborn child now. Like I, I can show you an example. You can listen and see and what see what I'm doing. But for me to get you to a point to where you're crossing over and understanding what it takes to heal. I can't spend most of my time there or else I'm neglecting my unborn child. You guys doing your work. And then is it a valid expectation that your parents do their work that they try? I think that's a valid expectation. Mm -hmm. Um, And having that expectation, but it's not your responsibility. Oh, amen. Right. All I can say is here's this boundary. You go do the work and let's hope we come out on the other side. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because then in doing that, we're setting the example, we're practicing in our own life. We train every single day for the type of people that we want to be. We're practicing and ingraining it in ourselves so that by the time we do have children, whether our parents have gone and done the healing or not, we've already set the standard, Mm -hmm. right? It's still their Mm -hmm. responsibility. And it's just our responsibility to live the way that we want to set the example for these hypothetical babies. Hypothetical babies. I was just going to say, you know, (laughs) having a child is not required. You can influence others in your life. That's true. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you. I love you, Lexus. Love you. Love you dearly. No regrets, but whew, kids are work. Oh, girl, <laughs> I can barely even stand myself sometimes. I think about that. I'm like, oh my goodness, no way. Who knows? Uh, on that note of kids being work, this has been a great conversation, Reggie. Thank you for your vulnerability and sharing with us. I know Lexus already mentioned that we get to talk with you more because I still have bookmarks in the book of things <laughs> I wanted to bring up and, and talk about. So we would love to have you join us again. Absolutely. I would love to. Make sure you check out our show notes so that you can find Reggie's information. His book again is PTSD, Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction. Breaking the Curse of Intergenerational Trauma as a Black Man in America. You can find the book pretty much anywhere. I got mine from Libro FM because it does go to local bookstores. So I think it's a great thing to do. So check it out through there, Amazon, etc. And you can find Reggie at ReggieDFord.com. Thank you again for being here. If mom and I are totally your cup of tea, please like this podcast, follow the show wherever you're listening, leave a review, share this episode with someone in your life that you want to have a conversation with. We will be back next week. In the meantime, please remember that life is beautiful and you create the magic. 
Have a good one. Connect with Shannon and Alexis in the Evolving Truths community by visiting evolvingtruthspodcast.com. Links are in the show notes. The artwork for this project was created by Julie B. Salazar and is entitled Celebration from the Inner Landscape Print Series. The Evolving Truths podcast is produced and edited by Shannon Day and Alexis Ray, recorded from the Corner Studio in conjunction with Alexis Ray Enterprises, LLC.